from one of the key places in the Bible that really shows us the inside of ministry. You know, we talked about truth. We've been talking about that for a couple of weeks. One of the great, greatest things about truth, especially in dealing with people, is, you know, when you work with people, and I know you know this is true, and this is not always true, but it, it's true. Uh, things on the inside many times do not match what you see on the outside. And uh, it takes a while to go to a Bible-believing church to get, if, if you like, getting truth all the time. And because truth forces you to look inside yourself. And none of us really like to do that. We all have this pristine picture of ourselves, and uh, that's not true. And truth, preaching of the Bible, forces us, no matter how good we are, it forces us to examine ourselves and to make course corrections in the things uh, in our lives. And many times you're going to find out when you deal with people, they'll come to church for a while, they'll stick out for a year maybe or whatever, and then you'll start to see that things change with them and what they once love about the church or the Bible, they no longer love. And, uh, you know, and if you look, Crack down to magnification, you usually see that a paper trail that they've been to five or six, seven, eight churches all their lives, and it's a pattern that, that, uh, that people get into. And we looked at John chapter 2, and, um, you know, it's a thing where uh, in John chapter 2, when we studied that, we saw the nation of Israel, and we saw how that Jesus himself said in Matthew chapter 23, verse 27, he, among other things, he said to them that they were like whited sepulchers. They were beautiful on the outside, white, beautiful marble, but on the inside was full of dead man bones. And, uh, you know, and that's what, that's what happens when truth shows up. You get what is really on the inside, what we really are. And honestly, some people can't deal with that. Uh, they've lived a life of denial all for years. They've uh, come to the place where they prop themselves up with the things that they want to believe. And when the reality of truth confronts them, they're just not up to the task. And, you know, and one of the great things we learned, I think, that, and I, we've talked about this in people ministry and in the, the Bible Institute, is that human nature never changes. We think because we live in an age with computers and cell phones and digital everything and, uh, you know, fast cars and that we're different than when they rode in chariots and had none of that stuff back in the Old Testament. Well, it's only different because of the things that we have. Uh, and, of course, uh, human nature never changes. I don't care if it's with Adam and Eve in the garden at 4004 B.C. or at the captivity of 606 B.C. or Christ coming at 4 B.C. or 500 A.D. at the beginning of the Dark Ages or 1600 when the King James Bible began to come out or 2021 where we're at today. You know, human nature never changes. And the key to being effective in helping people is to understand those simple patterns that people fall into and they follow. The patterns of human nature. It's not complicated. You know, when we looked at Moses, and I told you last week that he's probably one of the greatest examples of, uh, of uh, and a great study on a minister who is ministering. And, uh, you know, he has to deal with a nation of Israel. And boy, you can see all the aspects of the, the frustration that he had with God's people. And, and through that, I, I laid out the anatomy of the nation of Israel in the Old Testament, which is called the Church of the Wilderness in the book of Acts. And I showed you that the nation of Israel in the Old Testament was God's process to take the gospel to the world, or the, the truth of God to the world. And I showed you how that there were three parts to the nation of Israel that made up their anatomy, so to speak. And I told you how that you had the ark that was a type of Christ right in the middle. And then around that, in the daily operation, was three families who did everything and ministered in every way and made sure that the ark, it was, they were the closest to it of anybody. And I showed you how that those three families, many times the anatomy of a church will be the same way. 
you'll have people in every church that you get as close to the Bible and God as you can. And uh, you're always, you're not, you're not, you're always looking for opportunities. Some people are always looking for opportunities to miss an opportunity. You're never, you're never missing an opportunity to make good on an opportunity. And you see things, you understand things, and you, you give of yourself way beyond, you know, what uh, the average person would do. And you match into that. Then you had the second group, which was literally the 12 tribes. And I showed you how that they, Ark was in the center, the three families ministered there, and then the 12 tribes camped around in a circle uh, around the Ark. And, of course, the picture is obvious. The Ark is a type of Christ that was the center of everything that Israel did. And so they camped in a circle around it to be as close as they could. Uh, and everything that radiated from the, from the, the, the ark they, they, through the families then got to them. And then the third part was the, the mixed multitude, which is commonly called the, the, uh, uh, you know, the outer court. And they're the ones who came out of Egypt with uh, the nation of Israel, but they were just looking for an opportunity to get out. They were looking for whatever they could get that was a better deal than they had in Egypt. And uh, they, they, they camp at the uttermost part of the camp. And they are the real opposition, uh, the mixed multitude, that whenever Moses tries to do something or God tries to do something, <clears throat> when, the, when the 12 tribes have problems, it's because of their association with the outer camp, the mixed multitude that continually... Uh, you know, will cause the opposition to God's ministry. Uh, and, and we learned from that last week <clears throat> that it, there's no difference. The anatomy of the nation of Israel is the same anatomy we find in the New Testament local church today. And the things that Moses struggles with is the same with people, God's people, are the same thing that you'll struggle with when you minister to them. And, uh, you know, and we saw last week the real opposition to God's ministry will never just be the world but rather God's people, because it was true in the Old Testament under Moses. We saw it in John chapter 2 that it was true uh, in the New Testament under Christ. And I'm telling you right now, it'll be true for you and me as we try to do the work of God. And it's so important for you, if you have decided that you want to invest in, in the work of God, that you learn these lessons. And it simply comes down to understanding not only why the world does the things that they do the way they do it, but why God's people do the things that they do the way they do it. And in, you know, looking at the mixed multitude last week or the people from the outer group there, we looked at three patterns that you'll find with people that are like this. And yet they're in church every Sunday. I'm not talking about people who quit coming to church. I'm talking about people who are in churches every Sunday, and they may jump from church to church to church to church like a checkerboard. But the bottom line is there's three patterns and three areas that uh, they all have in characteristic. One of them, and we saw it last week in verses 18 through 25, that they, they had no spiritual discernment. They couldn't see anything that God was doing. And uh, here is Christ doing these miracles. The Old Testament prophecies are tenfold about who he was and now that he's here and they simply can't can't get who he is the second thing that there was no opening of the scriptures to them we saw this in verses 19 and 21 they had everything they needed to know exactly who he was and of course they they refused not to and then the third thing verses 24 and 25 I guess was really the crux of what we need to see and understand is, is Jesus takes the time to tell us what man, who man really is and what's really in man. And I took you back, if you remember, to the book of Romans and we walked through and I laid that out, all dealing with the works of the flesh. A Christian cannot live in the flesh because once you get saved, we know the process that you not, can no longer live in the flesh. That's what an unsaved man does. But you can, you can walk after the flesh. And uh, if the truth of God's Word doesn't overturn the tables in our lives, and our heart, then we uh, will, like John 2, we'll go right back to the old ways that we, uh, we did before we found the truth. And it's one of the greatest studies you'll ever uh, understand is how the devil will use God's own people to destroy the work of God. I said it last week. 
A saved person can do everything an unsaved person can do except die and go to hell. And of course, uh, you know, it's no, it's no secret how the devil will use that because he can always do more damage from the inside than he can from the outside. And, uh, you know, and he does it by attacking your family first because he knows that God's plan for reaching the world in the New Testament is the same as the plan in the Old Testament, and that is to reach them through families. The unbroken chain of families passing on and, uh, and, 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 and leaving a legacy uh, for the Lord. The second thing that he'll do will be in your own self. He'll attack you. And, and, and by association, if you allow the mixed multitude in your life. And there's an old, there's an old uh, thing back in Revelation. It's so true. It says, it doesn't say it this way, but this is where the saying comes from. It says, birds of a feather flock together. And you're going to find that disgruntled people always draw to other disgruntled people. And uh, we talked about making good investments. Uh, good investments in your life with God and through the work. And we know that Philippians 1, 6, he began a good work in you and he wants to perform it right up to the rapture of the church. And, you know, I talk a lot about our personal investment uh, because honestly, there's going to be tough times come. We've just seen the pandemic come through and, you know, there'll be things that come into our world that uh, uh, it's going to show up in the future that we're going to have to deal with. And I'm telling you right now, your own personal investment will be the only thing that will keep you in times of opposition or times of adversity. Uh, it's just asking, it keeps you focused. It, it keeps you understanding that you have a purpose. It, you know, if you don't have any real purpose to be at church on Sunday, then you won't be there. But if you've got people counting on you, if you've got something you want to get to get where you want to go with God, if you're making an investment in it, then it's a whole different story. And the key, obviously, the good investments, boy, you've heard this a thousand times from me, the key to good investments will be making good choices, putting the good choices in your life. And life, our lives, good or bad, will simply be about the choices that we have made. You know, in dealing with people, uh, people you see sometimes they get so far out that they're never going to get back. And they're saved. Uh, but they're so into the world. They're so into to denying the truth of the Word of God. And, you know, uh, they lose all reality of a life. Uh, you, you'll, you'll run into them all the time. And I want you to remember, in every case, no matter how far out there they are, it all started with a bad choice, just one. And then they added to those bad choices and it developed it into a life of bad choices. I, I think that suicide is a, is a terrible thing. And I feel terrible for people who aptly come to the point in their life where they, they, they feel that the only way to deal with life is to take themselves out of life. And I feel bad about that. But I understand the bottom line for the anatomy of suicide because in your Bible you have seven suicides. And if you want to understand why people take their lives, you start with that. But I'll simply say this. It's a tragedy, but honestly, if you're just going to lay it on the table, a man or a woman deciding they're going to take their life through suicide is just one more bad choice in a life of bad choices but unfortunately, this is the last bad choice. And it's the way life goes. Many times you'll find kids who are disobedient to parents. They won't listen to mom or dad for anything, love their money. They think they know all about it and they get out there and they get involved with somebody or something. And there is somebody that God had planned to use and they absolutely throw it away. All because they'll deny the truth and uh, make wrong investments. I, I've seen moms and dads make bad investments. You know, uh, you know, aligning their spirit with the wrong things, associating with the wrong people. And all the time, they're in church every Sunday, but the real proof of the pudding is, is an empty life of investments for God. Not one thing they're doing. And what's even more tragic, not one thing they care about. 
And one of the great things you want to remember that all investments, whether they're good or they're bad, they come with a compounding interest. You add to them and you build into them and they will control your life one way or the other. Okay. Enough of the doom and gloom of last week. Let's get into the doom and gloom of this week. (laughs) And today we're going to begin John chapter 3. And we're just going to have a good little Bible study today. This This is a great a thing in the Bible that, that you can learn today. And uh, so uh, I'm just going to tell you now, uh, you know, uh, Maddie, Kenzie, and Macy, uh, get ready. Grandpa's going to give you some more Bible today, and you want to get this all down. And uh, don't cheat off your mom because she always gets the wrong notes down anyhow. <laughs> but John chapter 3 today. You know, John chapter 3 is probably the most used chapter in the book of John, because it speaks and deals with being born again, which obviously is a New Testament doctrine for us. And yet I'd say that 99.9999% of the people who use this passage don't really understand what's happening here. You have the baby milk toast crowd who all they see is the nice little warm stuff. They don't get the real meat of what's happening here. This is one of the greatest places in the Bible to show you how the Bible will lay itself out. And we know that the Bible has a historical application, a doctrinal application, and an inspirational application. You've heard me say that a thousand times. And, you know, when I, when I do my Bible, when I, when I come to my Bible and, and the teaching of it, I try to stay as accurate to it as I can be. I, I never develop, never, excuse me, never deviate from the chain of scriptures, uh, you know, that it, it lays it out the way that it should be laid out. I, I never try to uh, make the Bible fit into what I want to believe or teach, but rather make my beliefs and my teaching fit into the Bible itself. I, in other words, I follow the rules. I don't just give them to you. I live by them when it comes to the Bible. You know, and I want my people, you that are here today or listening to me, I want my people, the ones who want it, I want you to have a complete understanding of the Word of God uh, as, you know, as accurate as humanly possible. And I will go to great lengths to give you what I've learned, uh, and more important, I think, uh, the way I learned it. Because I think that you take somebody, well, the Bible talks about it. You know, you get some old guy who's been in the Bible for a while. If he's done what he needs to do, you can learn a lot from that. That's where I learned what I know. The absolute truth of God's Word. Bible says in 1 Thessalonians 2.13, For that when you receive the Word of God, you received it not as the Word of men, but as it is in truth the Word of God, which effectually worketh also in you to believe. And for it to effectively work in you, you've got to believe it. And, uh, you know, that's, that's how I was taught. And, you know, in, in, in laying out the Bible, I, I like to use really good stories. Jesus was a great storyteller. I mean, when he tells stories in the Bible, you better listen. Because they always have a depth to them and they always have an impact into something uh, when he tells stories. And I like really good stories because in them are usually really good examples. I like stories that I can, I can take and show you how God will illustrate some doctrinal truth through the very story by weaving it through that very story. And in John chapter 3, uh, this will be a great story. And over the next couple of weeks, I want to use it to show you how to unlock your Bible. I don't want to just stay with a milk toast baby Christians that can't ever get past the little beanie weenie hot dogs in the cans. I want you to be able to digest a T-bone steak and be able to open up the scriptures and to understand and unlock your Bible. So let's read today John chapter 3 verses 1 through 10. And uh, it says this. There was a man of the Pharisees named Nicodemus, a ruler of the Jews. The same came to Jesus by night and said unto him, Rabbi, we know that thou art a teacher come from God. For no man can do these miracles that thou doest except God be with him. 
Jesus answered and said unto him, Verily, verily, I say unto thee, Except a man be born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. Nicodemus saith unto him, How can a man be born when he is old? Can he enter the second time into his mother's womb and be born? Jesus answered, Verily, verily, I say unto thee, Except a man be born of the water and of the Spirit, he cannot enter into the kingdom of God. That which is born of the flesh is flesh, and that which is born of the Spirit is spirit. Marvel not that I say unto you, Ye must be born again. The wind bloweth where it listeth, and thou hearest the sound thereof, but canst not tell whence it cometh. And whether it goeth, so is every one that is born of the Spirit. Nicodemus answered and said unto him, how, how can these things be? Jesus answered and said unto him, Art thou a master of Israel, and knowest not these things? Drake, would you stand up and ask God's blessing on the service for me this morning, buddy? Thank you, buddy. Now, as I said, this story has been used probably more than any other story in soul winning messages or in sitting down and telling someone how to be saved. And it's a great story. And I'm not taking that part away from it. Uh, it will, and it illustrates many things about a man and getting God's salvation. But there is so much more here. I don't know why God's people are so satisfied with just limiting themselves to the basics of the Bible. I've never figured that out. I mean, I don't know, maybe it's just me. When I, when I saw that book, what it was some 50 years ago, brother, I just couldn't put it down. I mean, I wanted everything out of it. I was never satisfied with the status quo. I was never satisfied with just getting a little bit out of it. I wanted everything out of it. I wanted to know everything there was in that, and I... I spent 50 years of my life trying to figure it out and probably got another 350 years to go before I get there. But as I said, this has been used in so many messages, and it's a great story. But this story will actually unlock four or five, maybe even six greater doctrines in the Bible for us. And, you know, in all the milk toast baby Christians, that's, that's all they'll ever get out of it. They'll just see it as it is, you know, Nicodemus, and all that stuff, use it as a nice little story. And, you know, that's where they'll be. But I want you to be better than that. I really do. Maybe you don't want to be better than that, and maybe you'll refuse to be better than that. That's on you. All I know for you is I want you to be better than that. I want you to understand your Bible on a, di- on a deep level that you can be able to take it apart and put it back together again and with no pieces left over. But before we do that, let's set some ground rules. Now, I know you probably already know these ground rules, especially if you're in Bible Institute, you know, and you've been in people ministry, or you've just been here with me. You probably know these, but let's, it's, we want to remember them, and let's set some ground rules in, in laying out the Bible. First of all, and I already made a mention to this, in your Bible, you're going to have every place in your Bible is going to have three applications to it. You're going to have a historical application to whatever you're reading, certainly in John 3. And the, the historical application is you've got to ask yourself, did this really happen? Is this really an event in history? Or is this a parable that he's telling of a story that didn't really happen? You have to determine that first. Then the second thing, you have to look at it, and doctrinally you have to say, okay, what is God showing me from this? What doctrinal truth in the prophecy or something that I need to see that is on a deeper level is he trying to lay out through this story. And then the third application that you'll want to ask yourself is the inspirational one, and then you'll want to say, okay, how does this apply to me today? What do I take from this to get me through what I'm going through today? Now, that's the first rule that you'll always want to follow, and we'll certainly follow that today. The second one, you want to remember this, and boy, this is this one. This one will kill you. All the Bible is written for you, but not all the Bible is written directly to you. 
And the biggest messes you ever get into is when you take something in the Bible that is directed to somebody else other than you as a New Testament Christian and you try to make it work for you. And your Bible, your Bible is addressed to three people groups. It's addressed, first of all, to the Jews, the nation of Israel. Then it's addressed to the Gentiles, that's you. And then it's addressed to the church, that's you who are that are saved. And when you come to a passage of Scripture, you know, you, you have to determine who he's speaking to. Then the third thing that I want you to remember, and we've talked about this many, many times. I think we talked about it even Thursday night. Every story in the Gospels, every man, every woman, every child, every event, will in some way be a picture of the nation of Israel in their spiritual condition or in some format of their relationship with God. And to unlock the Bible, you must answer these three questions because they will begin to give you the context. And without a context, you ain't going anywhere. Now, let's look at this thing historically for a moment. In John chapter 3, verses 1 through 10, we have the story of Nicodemus. Historically, it's an actual event. This is not a parable. This is a true story. Nicodemus was a real man in history. The Bible tells us that he's a high Jewish leader. He's not just a Pharisee, but he's the leader of the Pharisees. He's the Nancy Pelosi of the Jews. <laughs> He's over everything and everybody that is screwed up. And the Bible says that he's a ruler of the Jews. His name, Nicodemus, means victory of the people. And he comes to see, and I, this is interesting, he comes to see Jesus at night. And that would suggest that he was afraid of the other Pharisees, of them knowing that he was coming there, so he waited till the cover of darkness and then, you know, snuck in and, and come to see Jesus. And that's, uh, that's, you know, that's where he was at at that point in time. But I got to say this, and this is another great study. We don't have time to get into this today. Something happened out of this meeting, and because in John chapter 19, verse 39, when Christ dies on the cross, it's Nicodemus and Joseph of Arimathea that publicly go to Pilate in front of everybody and beg the body of Jesus and then prepare it for burial. So from, from John 3 to John 19, something changed in his world. And that is a great study because from the time you first meet Jesus to the time you come a point in life, some things that have changed in your life too. And here in John chapter 3, him and Jesus have a discussion found in this passage in verses 1 through 10. And it's a discussion on being born again. Now, the average pastor today, the average Christian, the average worker, Sunday school teacher, they'll only see this story as you and me getting born again. And they will never follow those three rules, for if they did, they would see a great four or five different doctrines here that really help unlock the Bible without putting everything into a perspective of where you're at and where Nicodemus is at and what Jesus is really talking about. I mean, from the milk bottle to T-bone steaks, that's my goal for you. Now, let's get our facts together. Let's get our facts together, first of all, and then we'll, we'll proceed through this. On the issue of being born again, verse 3, he says, except a man be born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. Now, first heads up I would have in reading this, and there's two here. But the first heads up that would come to me that I'd say, whoa, I, would, I have trained myself, and you need to train yourself for look to things like this. Everybody will tell you that this is a story about Nicodemus getting born again. And, of course, when you read this, I want you to notice that the first heads up you get, to me anyhow, would be that he didn't tell Nicodemus that he needed to be born again. He just simply said, except a man be born again. Now, going back to rule number three, 
few moments ago, this story and this man, uh, we told you now will be that every story is a picture of Israel. This man here that he's talking about being born again will be the nation of Israel as we find it in this time frame. And we know from Exodus chapter 4 that the nation of Israel as a corporate nation is called God's son. And, you know, this story is not unlike the story of Lazarus in John chapter 11. There's more going on there than just Lazarus getting raised from the dead. It's, it goes along with Luke chapter 15 and the prodigal son. Now, there's more going on there than just this boy going out and coming back after he lives with the pigs. It's, it's, it's like Luke chapter 8 where in verse 42 where you have a little girl, uh, 12 years of old, who dies. And Jesus said, everybody says she's dead. And Jesus said, she ain't dead, she sleepeth. And they all laughed at him. He just gave him one of the greatest keys to death and dying uh, in Christ that you could ever have. But they missed it. This story is a lot like Luke chapter 8, verse 43, where it talks about the woman who had an issue of blood for 12 years. And if you think that that story is just a story about a woman, you're crazy. You see, God will take a story like John 3, and when you follow the rules, you learn what it is, but you also learn what it isn't. Now, the next thing that would get my attention, it says, except a man be born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. Well, that, that, that ought to be on you like ugly on a 300-pound sumo wrestler jumping on your head. How can anybody see the kingdom of God when the Bible clearly tells us in Romans chapter 14, verse 7, that it's not meat nor drink, it's not physical, but it's righteousness and peace in the Holy Ghost. And then Luke chapter 17, verse 21 tells you that the, the kingdom of God is inside you. You can't see it. At least you can't. So if I'm reading that and I see the first thing he didn't say, Nicodemus, you need to be born again. He said, Nicodemus, a man. Wow, that's a key for me. And then he says, he won't see it. There's no way you and I can see it. But there's a way that Israel will see it in a millennium. We laid it out for you a couple of Thursday nights ago. Now, our next fact check will be this. Nicodemus, he couldn't have gotten born again if he wanted to. You get born again by the Holy Spirit of God and the Holy Spirit of God will not be here for 33 more years. Now let's do a little Bible study here. Let's help you put this together. Let's at least try to get you off the bottle today and try to get you into a cheeseburger. In the Bible, being born again is defined for you as a man getting regenerated. You'll find the word regenerated. Regenerated. The word generated means <coughs> you get born again, <coughs> but the way the Bible uses it, it uses the word regenerated. What does that mean? It means that Adam had it, and then he lost it, <coughs> and then Christ came down and died so you could get the image back, and he did it by regenerating the image that Adam had but lost, and now you get it back, restoring the foliage image of man. So the word is regeneration. It once was here, got lost, and now it's back. Now, here's the key. Ooh, little Bible study. In your Bible, you'll find two regenerations. Of course, I know you know that. You find in your Bible two regenerations. One for the nation of Israel, which will be their new birth, where they're regenerated as a nation. <clears throat> and you'll find that in Matthew chapter 19, verse 28, where it says this. And Jesus said unto them, Verily, verily, I say unto you, I say, I say unto you that ye which have followed me in the regeneration... See that thing? Now, watch him define that one. When the Son of Man shall sit on the throne of his glory, ye also shall sit upon twelve thrones, judging 
the 12 tribes of Israel, then this regeneration is at the second coming of Christ. Let's take it a little bit farther. Acts chapter 3, verse 19. Repent ye therefore and be converted that your sins be blotted out when the times of refreshing shall come from the what? Presence of the Lord. Now this is the born again that Jesus is telling Nicodemus about. This is why he didn't say to him, Nicodemus, you need to be born again. Now let me just stop here and say this. If you're sitting here this morning and you're not saved, you need to be born again. Uh, Don't misunderstand this because I'm going to come down your road here in just a moment, but you need to be regenerated. You need to be saved. And the only way that you and I can be saved, and I'll show it to you in a moment here, is for your own personal regeneration. Hang with me and I'll get there. This is the regeneration of Israel as a nation by the times of refreshing as a nation. God's son, a man being born of the spirit, being born again. You'll find that in Ezekiel chapter 40 through chapter 48 that takes place when the son of man's on the throne of his glory, the millennial reign of Christ. Then you'll have the second regeneration in the Bible. And this one is for you and for me people saved in the church age after Acts chapter 7, after the Holy Spirit of God has come down. And you were told this was going to happen in John chapter 16, if you're paying attention, but it hadn't happened when John uh, in 3, because he tells you in John 16 that it hasn't happened yet. And this one's found in Titus chapter 3, verses 4, 5, and 6. So let's read this one. But after that, the kindness and love of God, our Savior, toward man appeared. Praise the Lord for that. That means that God loved you enough that he came down and died for you, and then that love appeared to you. And you can have it today if you want it. You don't have to go through life empty. You don't have to go through life wondering, is this real or that real? God is real, and God has the truth for you that will unlock everything you're facing in life and everything you're going to see in the world. How do you do that? Verse 5, not by works of righteousness which we have done. You can't do anything to earn God's salvation. You can't do a thing. In fact, the Bible says in Isaiah 64 that all of our righteousness is as filthy rags in the sight of God. There ain't a thing you can do to get God's righteousness. So he says, not by works of righteousness which we have done, but according to his mercy he has saved us. Ah, let's see how he saved us. Born again, let's see how he saved us. Let's get the Bible word for it. Hath he saved us by the washing of regeneration. See that thing? Now watch this. And by the renewing of the Holy Ghost. Renewing of the Holy Ghost? Yeah, Adam had it and lost it. You get it renewed in you. Adam had the regeneration. He lost it. And then the regeneration comes to you through Christ Jesus' death on the cross after the Holy Spirit of God comes in the church age. Two two. Two, uh, two regenerations in the Bible. Now, see how easy that was? It's not complicated when you just follow and use the Bible. Just using your Bible and following the rules that God, and he will unlock the scriptures for you and show you how to do that. So when Nicodemus and Christ have this conversation here in John chapter 3, he's telling him as a leader of, of the Jews, a leader of the nation of Israel, that Israel, God's son, as a nation, needs to be born again. They need to get regenerated. And their regeneration comes from the presence of the Lord, the times of refreshing, the second coming of Christ. That's when Israel, as a nation, gets born again. And that's who he's talking to in John chapter 3. And to try to make that directly, to try to make that directly a fit into the church, For you, when in John 3, the church isn't in an effect yet, Holy Spirit of God hasn't come, only shows how little you know about the Bible. You have to be able to rightly divide the word of truth. Now look at verse 5 here. We'll clean this all all the way up here. Just like when you go to the dentist, he looks in your mouth and you got one cavity and then he sees three more. He says, let's just take the time to get them all done today. Look at verse 5. Jesus answered, Verily, verily, I say unto thee, except a man be born of the water and of the Spirit, he cannot enter into the kingdom of God. 
Now, let's continue our Bible study, shall we? We know now that the conversation between him and Nicodemus has nothing to do with Nicodemus becoming born again like you and me. Though, you need to be born again. Two regenerations in the Bible. Don't get the regeneration going to Israel and try to apply it to you. You'll never make it that way. You need to see clearly the difference between Matthew 19 and the book of Titus. There's a regeneration of the second coming for Israel, that they're being born again. There's a regeneration for you and me after uh, Acts chapter 7 into the church age. And if you're saved here this morning, you got regenerated by a new birth. And if you know what, and if you didn't, you know. You know and a guy asked me one time, I forget who asked me this. He says, well, you talk about the term born again. It's only found, it's only found in John chapter 3. And uh, somebody said, well, no, it's over there in the book of Peter, too. And he says, yeah, but that's not to the church. He said, how come Paul never used the term born again? You've got to really be stupid not to know the answer to that. And it's a thing where, but that's what you get into, you see. Guys like that, they come to the place where they say, well, he should, Paul never used the term born again. Gee, I wonder why he never did. I guess when you were born, you were without oxygen how long? That's one of the easiest questions to answer anywhere in the Bible, why John didn't, why Paul didn't use the term born again. Are you kidding me? But, of course, these guys are so shallow when it comes to the Bible. They, they don't get it. They don't get it. And so he says here, born of the water. Now, this will be the beginning of the regeneration for the nation of Israel at the second coming of Christ. Take your Bibles and turn back to the book of James. We'll do a little Bible study today. And while you're turning there, I'm telling you again, if you're not saved this morning, you need to be born again. Next week, I'm going to take the inspirational side, and I'm going to show you how it does apply to you, but you've got to be careful with it. And, uh, but today, you know, I've just, just got to deal with these things uh, one at a time to make sure I get it all accurately to you. But let me just say this so you don't miss the boat. If you're here this morning and you don't know for sure, if you died right now that you'd go to heaven, you need to make sure and you need to trust the Lord Jesus Christ as your own personal Savior. You need that regeneration. You need that born again for you. All right, James chapter 5. Let's look at the water and the Spirit here. Now, obviously, again, we go to the book of James. I know you're in chapter 5, but if you would look back at James 1.1, here again, you've got to always ask yourself, who's this book written to? Notice it's written, James chapter 1, verse 1. It's not written to the church. It's written to the 12 tribes that are scattered. It's written to Israel. So you've got to take that into consideration before you just jump in here and, and get it all out of whack. Now let's read it. Start in verse 7. 5, 7. Be patient, therefore, brethren, under the coming of the Lord. Behold, the husbandman waiteth for the precious fruit of the earth and hath long patience for it, until he receiveth the early and latter rain. Ye also, uh, be ye also patient, establish your hearts, for the coming of the Lord draweth nigh. Grudge not one against another, brethren, lest ye be condemned. Behold, the judge standeth before the door. Take my brethren the prophets, oh, here we go, who have spoken in the name of the Lord for an example of suffering, affliction, and patience. Then whoever he's writing this to, is suffering, and he's telling them to have to be established and to have patience. Let's go on. But, but behold, we count them happy which endure. Now, there's another key word. You have heard of the patience of Job. There's another key word. You have seen the end. There's another key word that the Lord is pitiful of tender mercies. Above all, all things, my brethren, swear not neither by heaven, neither by earth, neither by any other oath. Ah, there's another key word. Somebody taking an oath to somebody. Wonder who that could be. But let your yea be yea and your nay be nay, lest you fall into condemnation. Is there any among you afflicted? Let him pray. Is there any merry? Let him sing psalms. Uh, is there any sick among you? Let him call for the elders of the church and let them pray over him according to him, uh, anointing him with oil in the name of the Lord. Now, I just got to stop here again and show you how people get this out of whack. You see, you see the word call the elders of the church. So immediately, every Baptist preacher in this country, almost without exception, think that that church there that he's talking about is our church. 
the church that Paul wrote to. And of course, there's four or five different churches in the Bible. You just happen to be the one that is the uh, embodiment of God's Holy Spirit. But, you know, but they don't get that. And so here's the thing where because they, didn't, they missed verse 1, that it was to the 12 tribes, now they're going to try to put this thing into the church, and it's one of the most disappointing things that you're ever going to find in your life. Because down here it says if somebody is really sick, if you anoint them with oil, that that oil seemingly will heal them. Now, I've been associated with a lot of churches for 50 years. And when I was just a young guy and I just got into the ministry, I was on a staff of a church here in Kansas City. And we, I went through this scenario two or three times where somebody was dying of cancer and the doctors had done everything that they needed to do, uh, could do, and they said there was no hope. So the guys came, one guy, two guys and a woman, they came, not at the same time, over the course of time, they came to the pastor and they said, we've exhausted everything. We're now going to ask the church to anoint us with oil that, that we can stop this cancer. Well, me being the low guy on the totem pole, we were going to do this little thing before church on Sunday night. I was given the task of getting the oil. Now, I can't tell you, uh, for a normal person, and I'm never normal, but for a normal person, that would be a great weight. Because I went down to the kitchen, opened up the pantry, and I was immediately confronted with nine or ten different types of oil. And the average Christian would think, if I get the wrong oil, I'm going to kill this guy. He had Wesson oil. He had Crisco oil. Somebody from the bus ministry had left a can of 40 weight in there. <laughs> I don't know how much weight the oil needs to be to carry the weight with God, but uh, anyway, there was three in one oil. And me, Slicky Bob, I thought, let's just save a lot of time. Here's a spray can of WD 40. Let's just take that. We can shoot everybody in the room. <laughs> Long story short, I did what I was supposed to do. You want to know what oil I got? I got, the, I got the Penn's oil. I thought it was good enough for Buddy Baker. It was good enough for this guy. And so put it in a little cup. Guy was sitting there, and all the pastors were around, and he dips the oil on his head and makes a cross with it, you know, and, and anoints him with oil. And, and then, you know, and three weeks later, he's dead. Next guy came in a year later. I don't remember what it was. Dead. I did try a different oil that time. I thought maybe just by a stroke it was my screw-up. Uh, dead. Lady came in, and I'm not, I'm sorry they died. I, I'm not making fun of the fact that they died. I'm making fun that God's people were so stupid that they think that the oil was really going to heal them out of James chapter 5 here. And, of course, the, third, the lady, she died. And, uh, you know, these guys, uh, it's, it's a lot like the charismatics, you know. They always talk about healing and always talk about this is a big thing with them. But when the person doesn't get healed and dies, they don't have much to say about it. I mean, I'd love to have a funeral where the guy get up and, and believe the healing and what God can pay people from the dead. You, you know what a hallelujah service that would be if you could just walk over and raise that dead guy up? I mean, you want to you get people to believe that you got the power of God? Just try that one. And if you really got the power to heal, what are you doing in, a, in, a, in, a, in your pulpit? Why aren't you down at KU Medical Center going through the cancer and the burn warm with the little kids? What's the matter with you? And, of course, it's phony. It doesn't work. And, uh, you know, I, I'd much soon guy get up there and, and give me an explanation why what he believed didn't work for this woman. I ain't going to do that. Anyway, I know, I'm a too much of a reality. But anyway, and it says, you know, you pray over him, anoint him with oil and, and, and the name of the Lord. And the prayer of faith shall save the sick, and the Lord shall raise him up. If he have committed sin, they will, shall be forgiven him. Now, that, you think that would be a problem because God's already forgiven you of your sins if you're a saved person. But that doesn't seem, confess your faults one to another. And pray one for another that you may be healed. Effectual, fervent man of a righteous man. Veil him up. Now that's a good verse. And I don't have a problem with somebody using that verse. Because that's across the board. But watch. Here it comes. Elias was a man subject to like passions as we are. And he prayed earnestly that it might not rain. And it rained not on the earth by the space of three years and six months. And he prayed again. And heaven gave rain. And the earth brought forth her fruit. 
Notice rain is, just so you know this now, I'm sure, rain is water. Okay, in case you got that down. Okay. And he prayed again, and the heaven gave rain, and the water brought forth her fruit. Brethren, if any of you do err from the truth, one convert him, uh, let him know that which is converted the sinner from the error of his way shall save his soul from death and shall hide a multitude of sins. First of all, this has nothing to do with the church. This is a tribulation passage with the Jew in the tribulation period. I mean, let me explain all this to you about the water doctrinally. In the tribulation, from here, this verse, Moses and Elijah show up as the two witnesses, Revelation chapter 11, book of Zechariah. And they show up and they do in the tribulations the miracles that they did when they were on the earth back in the Old Testament as they were leading the nation of Israel, which is another great story in itself that we had all time to get into. And back in the Old Testament in 1 Kings chapter 17, verse 1, what did Elijah do? He's up against a wicked king and his wife, Ahab, type of the Antichrist, Jezebel, type of Babylon, mystery religion, the mother of harlots. That's your picture. And he shuts up heavens that it doesn't rain. And it doesn't rain for three and a half years. And then when God's ready to give the deliverance to the nation of Israel, he prays again and the heavens open up and the rain comes down. Now, in your Bible study, if you want to study it, this is called, well, you saw it in verse 7 up there, early in the latter rain. In the Old Testament, it's called the former and the latter rain. The references of it are all through the Old Testament. Joel chapter 2, Job chapter 37, 2 Chronicles chapter 6, 2 Chronicles chapter 7, Proverbs chapter 16, Psalm 68, Revelation 11, 2 Samuel 23, Hosea 10, and Jeremiah chapter 14, and Isaiah chapter 5. It's all through the Bible. Former and latter rain. Now here's how it's going to work. This is how it fits into this and what he's saying to Nicodemus back here. When the Antichrist comes to power in the middle of the tribulation period, and you know it's seven years, three and a half on both sides, Moses and Elijah show up. Elijah shut down heaven at that point that it doesn't rain for three and a half years. At the end of that three and a half years, he opens up a heavens and it rains. And that rain will bring in the second coming of Christ, the fruit of the nation of Israel, the times of refreshing, being born again, verse 18, verse 7, Revelation 14, 4, the millennium. Now, you should already know this, that in your Bible, the second coming of Christ is likened to a rainstorm. You should already know this. There's two rainbows in the Bible. What does a rainbow come out? It comes out at the end of a tremendous rainstorm. And there's two rainbows in the Bible. You ought to know that. The first one was with Noah. When he comes out of the ark and out of the flood in Genesis 9, 13. And the second one is found in Revelation chapter 4 and Revelation chapter 10 when the Lord comes back at the second coming of Christ. And what does it say to us? It says, as it was in the days of Noah, so shall it be in the coming of the Son of Man. Noah came out of a rainstorm into a world that was all ready to go and the second coming of Christ is going to come out of a rainstorm brought about by Elijah the prophet. Rain in the Bible will always be a picture of, the, of God's Word coming down to us. Isaiah chapter 55, verse 8, 9, 10, 11. For my thoughts are not your thoughts, neither are my ways your ways, saith the Lord. For as the heavens are higher than the earth, so are my ways higher than your ways, and my thoughts than your thoughts. As the rain cometh down, and snow from heaven, and returneth not hither, but watereth the earth, making it to bring forth and bud. It gives seed to the sower and bread to the eater. So shall my word that goeth forth out of my mouth. Context, word out of his mouth, Revelation 19.11, second coming of Christ. But will accomplish that which I please and shall prosper in the thing where I sent it. Now that's the water he's talking about. The latter, former and the latter rain, the latter rain bringing in Israel's regeneration by the times of refreshing as the word of God coming down out of his mouth that brings now Israel into the fruit-bearing process. And as a nation, she's regenerated, born again. That's what he's telling Nicodemus. 
He says in verse 6, going back to John chapter 3, that which is born of the flesh is flesh, and that which is born of the Spirit is spirit. All right? nation of Israel was born in the flesh in Exodus chapter 12. Did you ever read Exodus chapter 12, verse 1, that that's a new beginning for the nation of Israel? That's where God counted her birth. Why, he even changed the beginning of their year based on that. So born of the flesh is Exodus chapter 12, and born of the Spirit is the second coming of Christ. There you go. Now, verses 4 through 9, Nicodemus says, and I love this, how can these things be? <laughs> Some of you are probably saying the same thing. How, how can these things be? Well, Nick, they're in the Bible. I mean, I, I don't know what to tell you. But that's the, that's the problem with God's people today. They don't know anything about the Bible, so when they hear something true about the Bible that may not be what they've always thought about the Bible because they're so shallow in the Bible, and if you threw an open Bible in front of them, they couldn't defend themselves. That's Nicodemus. And it's a picture. Now, this is, this is good. You want to listen to me on this. It's a picture of Israel's inability to unlock the Scriptures that I told you about last week because they have rejected the truth of God's Word, Jesus Christ, when He's shown up. But I want you to see something else here. And boy, you better learn this. Nicodemus, we'll see it next week. He really believed who Christ said he was. He may have been a member of the Sanhedrin and he met him in a Pharisee of the Pharisees, but underneath that, he knew that Jesus was the real deal. The fact that he came by night, I'm not gonna, I'm not gonna, I'm not gonna criticize him on that any more than I am Peter denying the Lord. You know why? It'd be kind of hard for me all the times I chickened out on God, and you too. So I'm not holding that against him. I think it's a great study to see how he was here and how he got to that place in John chapter 19. Something transformed in his life. But when he comes to Jesus, he knows exactly who he is. He gives him the right title. We'll see you next week. He gives him his proper place. He says everything right that he's supposed to say. Now here it comes. Yet, he can't get squat out of the Bible. He looks at what Jesus just said and says, how can a man go back into his mother's womb when he is old? Couldn't get it. He looks at what Jesus says and he says, how can these things be? Couldn't get it. Here it comes, guys, and you better learn this. Many of God's people can believe the right things, but the reason why Nicodemus couldn't get anything out of the Bible is because of the crowd that he's hanging out with. He may have believed it, but his doctrine is steeped and the Pharisees. And all his life he's been taught something contrary. And there's a lot of God's people who they have the right Bible and they believe that Jesus Christ and they're even saved. But you can't get squat out of the Bible. You know why? Because you're hanging out with the wrong crowd. And God says, you know what? That crowd doesn't want to learn the Bible. All they want to do is complain about everything. So if you're going to hang out with them, then you get what they got. Because you ain't getting nothing from me. That's Nicodemus. Verse 10. Jesus said, Art thou a master of Israel and you don't know these things? No, I got to tell you right now, that had to be hard on his ego. I mean, that's like telling Joe Biden, you're the president, you don't know what you're doing. That's tough. And it's tough for God's people. You see, that was the reality truth. That was the truth. Maybe that was the key. I don't know. Maybe that's what it took. Maybe as he left that night, he, that's all he thought about. Yeah, I am a master of Israel. And I don't know these things. Sometimes it takes something really shocking that hits you right in the face and damages and dents your ego for you to see your true condition. 
I, I don't read stories like this, and I don't think back when, when I was a kid in school, in, in grade school, anyhow. Fifth, sixth, seventh, eighth, ninth grade. I, I never really straightened up till and got my head when I was till I got to be a, maybe a junior or senior in high school. I was pretty much a goofball all the other times. And I remember, and, hey, my athletic skills are down with subplant life to nil. <laughs> I mean, I can pitch pretty good, but that's only because I have tremendous laser focus and I always pitch to a guy's ego. But other than that. I watch you guys hit the ball over the fence. I'd have to launch it out of a mortar round tube to get mine to go that far. I watch you guys dribble a basketball. I couldn't dribble a basketball. You do it between your legs. You do it about around that. You do it around your back. You do all these things. And then you jump up and shoot, and that goes whoosh. I'm terrible at sports. I'm a guy who don't, I don't even still understand why when you go to the Royals game, how the umpire's got to be named Al. <laughs> got it on their hat. Think about that one for just a little while. Anyway, when I was in the seventh grade, the gym teacher put out a bulletin that they were going to hold basketball tryouts early on a Monday morning. They'll put a high school, but a grade school basketball team together. Going to have tryouts all week long. He said, we're going to evaluate your skills. Well, so I show up down there, you know. I mean, I I, I thought I was going to make it. I got my own locker. I put a calendar in it because I planned to be there for a long time. (laughs) Had my own lock. I, I just had a great thing. And so they're out there and everybody's dribbling the ball and I'm just, I'm making a, I, I am just, I, I mean, I'm shooting the ball, you know, hitting nothing. I mean, I'm dribbling, tripping over my own feet, you know, and I'm just a hot dog. And the coach blew the whistle and he says, Alexander, come over here. Now, I'm thinking he's seen my starlight credibility actions. He's seen my laser moves. He's seen the fact that I, I can move the ball. And he says, come here, i got to ask you a question. I said, yes, sir, coach. That's, that's it. Yes, sir, coach. That's me. Yes, sir, coach. He says, don't you ever get tired of being a jerk? And I thought to myself, yeah, I do. See, I didn't like that. But I accepted that because I knew it was the truth. And sometimes you have to get hit with something like that that just takes you off your, in my case, the Basketball Hall of Fame. (laughs) That I wasn't going to be the star shooter. That I wasn't going to be the star dribbler. That you weren't going to see my name on the front of high school basketball today. And I hear those words in that moment just like it was yesterday because I never wanted to forget from that point on. And I was not mad at him because I knew he was right. But at that point, I knew that, that something had to change about me. And the rest of my life, I've never forgot that. That may seem like a meaningless, doofy, goofy story to you. That's okay. I carried that with me the rest of my life. And many times when I've done something stupid, I think of that day and I say, oh, don't you ever get tired of being a jerk? And my answer is always the same. I sure do. Something happened with Nicodemus. Here's a guy that come by night, and I, I guarantee you, I, I, he didn't sneak in. He had a, he had a caravan of, of Cadillacs with the lights out, darkened windows. And he stepped out of there, probably came at 1 or 2 o'clock in the morning. And he went in there by night, and Jesus laid out the greatest truths that anybody could have, and he couldn't get it. He couldn't get it. And, and finally Jesus says, Art thou a master of Israel, and you don't know these things? What's wrong with you? What's wrong with you? And I guarantee you, knowing Bible scholars, Pharisees, the way we all do, that nailed him. But it nailed him good 
Because whatever he thought about after that for the next, what, 33 years brought him to the cross to want that body. And he didn't care who thought what at that point in time. It's a great study. Great story. It's a great key. The learned men of this life will be the same way. The Bible scholars, the Bible colleges, the Bible professors, the Greek and Hebrew professors. You know, they, they will all know nothing about unlocking the scriptures. They'll all have a set of terms and they'll all have what they've been taught. But when it comes to, they're just like Nicodemus. You see, when it comes to the Bible, you need to leave your education, you need to leave your status, you need to leave your theology, you need to leave your religion, you need to leave your position, and, you, and everything you've been taught, you just need to come as a baby. You need to come as a little child and simply say, Lord, I don't know anything. Nicodemus had to get to that point. And so there's more going on here in this meeting that the average person just sees, well, this is where we go to show somebody to be born again. You're out of your mind. There's so much going on here and how many doctrines now have we laid out by looking at this story? Art thou a master of Israel and knowest not these things? You know, and I, I, I ask God's people, how long will it take for you? Now, I know many of you, you're, you're coming along. I mean, you're doing great. Boy, I'll tell you, I am proud of you. You're doing, you're doing really good. You're, doing, you're, doing, you're learning, you're growing, you're getting everything that you need. But I've had people in my ministry for 30, 40 years. They know no more about the Bible now than they did the first day I met them. And it's a thing where, you know, it, there has to be a time in your life when you stop and look at yourself and you say, you know what? I am not happy with the way I am with the Word of God. And I'm not going to stay here any longer. You're in a church that there is absolutely no reason for you not knowing everything about the Bible you need to know, except the fact you don't want to. Human nature never changes. It never does. Now, next week, I'm going to take this same story, and I'm going to show you how... You do apply it to somebody being born again. There's certain things that you can take out of it, and certain things you can't take out of it. And I want to show you because, again, I want you to—I want, to, want you to be accurate with the Bible. I want you to have the Bible down to the point where you see who it's written to, you see the stories and what they're trying to convey, which I think is pretty obvious after what we came through today. And none of it's hard. I mean, it'd be one thing if I said, go back and study the Greek or the Hebrew for 40 years and then come back and see me. None of this is hard. But it takes discipline. It takes a desire for you to want it more than anything else that nothing's going to stand in your way. And you're going to do whatever you got to do for as long as it takes. You're going to get the people, places, things in your world to make it happen you're going to learn that book. Because at the end of the day, that book's the only thing that's going to keep you. Your health will let you down. Your family will let you down. Your friends will let you down. Everybody in life will let you down at some point or the other or the possibility that they can. There's one thing that will never let you down. That is God's truth. It'll stick with you forever. So next week, I'm going to take you inspirationally and I'm going to show you how you can take this passage and we actually use it in a way to, to, uh, to win someone to Christ. There's some great things in there, but you have to understand what your limitations are. Every head bowed and every eye closed.